Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. My name is Alyssa Gray, and today we'll be studying Yoma Daf Membet, Yoma 42. Our Daf continues the analysis of the Mishnah on 41b. That Mishnah stated that the high priest would tie a scarlet strap on the head of the goat that was to be sent out into the wilderness, the Seir HaMishtaleach, and around the neck of the goat that was to be slaughtered as atonement. The high priest would then approach his own bullock a second time and offer a confession on behalf of the priesthood, the house of Aaron. The two relevant animals mentioned in the Mishnah were the Seir HaMishtaleach and the bullock, called Paro, his or the priest's par. Toward the bottom of 41b, the Gemara brings another animal into the discussion, the para, shorthand for the para aduma, the red heifer. With the introduction of the red heifer, the para, we're ready to begin our own study of the daf. We will focus first on a small theological trace on 42a, and then on the larger issue of the rabbinic reading of scripture. Toward the top of 42a, Rabbi Yochanan says that Rabbi Shimon ben Chalafta and the rabbis disagreed about the strap tied on the para. One said it was a very heavy ten shekels in weight, the other a light one shekel in weight. A mnemonic was applied to this to make it easy to remember. Echad hamarbeh the echad hamamit, meaning the one who expands and the one who diminishes are the same. This phrase, Echad Hamarbev Echad Hamamit, appears on Bavli Brachot 17a, among other places. There it is part of a statement attributed to the rabbis of Yavne of the first century after the destruction of the temple that they recognize and respect non rabbis who engage in their non Torah work, just as they, the rabbis, engage in their own Torah work. Lest the rabbis be tempted to say that they engage more in Torah than non-rabbis, marbeh, as opposed to mamit, they point out that echad hamarbeh ve echad hamamit, it is all the same whether one does a lot or a little, ubilvach yechavein libola shamayim, provided that he directs his heart toward heaven. In context here on 42a in Yoma, as a mnemonic device, the statement means that one scholar holds with the view of a large, marbe, ten shekel weight, while one holds with the view of a small, mamit, one shekel weight. The utility of this phrase as a memory device is related to the statement in Brachot that this was margala befumayaho de Rabbanan, something that was regularly in the mouths of the rabbis. In other words, they know it. Being known, the expression is available for dual or multiple use, including as a mnemonic or memory device. Moving on, Rabbi Yermia Midifti tells Ravina on our daf that Rabbi Shimon ben Chalafta and the rabbis had actually been arguing over the Seir HaMishtaleach, not the para. As it happened, a scholar named Ravia Barkisi died on the day of that dispute, and in order to recall that the dispute was actually about the Seir HaMishtaleach, they said, quote, Ravia Barkisi atones like the Seir HaMishtaleach, unquote. It is this, 
the idea that the death of a righteous person atones for others that we want to reflect on briefly. The idea that the death of the righteous atones is found in chapter 1 of Yerushalmi Yoma. There, Rabbi Chia Barba points out that even though Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, died on the first day of Nisan, their deaths were mentioned in the Torah in connection with Yom Kippur. The reason for this was that the Torah wished to point out that the deaths of the righteous atone just like Yom Kippur atones. Similarly, Rabbi Ba Barbina points out that Miriam's death is juxtaposed to the Torah's discussion of the para aduma, the red heifer, to point out that just as the ashes of the para atone for Israel, so do the deaths of the righteous atone for Israel. Rabbi Ami teaches the lesson about Miriam in the Bavli on Moed Katan 28a. The sons of Aaron are missing from Moed Katan 28a. Rabbi Elazar teaches the point about the atoning power of the deaths of the righteous there, but reference to Aaron himself instead of his sons. Rabbeinu Hananel in the 10th century has an interesting different girsah of the teaching about Miriam and Moed Katan. He says that just as the para purifies sins and is called a chatat, so do the deaths of righteous women purify and atone for the sins of Israel, although he adds, quote, all the more so the deaths of the righteous men, unquote. It is interesting that here on Yoma 42a, we see that the death of a rabbi is said to atone like the deaths of the biblical greats Aaron, Miriam, and possibly the sons of Aaron. The general notion that the deaths of the righteous atone for sin is certainly interesting by itself, but especially interesting in the context of the Yoma tractates. Yoma spends a great deal of time spelling out the details of the priestly atonement rituals in the temple. By pointing out that the deaths of the righteous atone for sin, and by 42a's indication that the death of a righteous rabbi atones for sin, the Yoma tractates subtly challenge the temple-centric rituals. The deaths of the righteous atone, just like the sacrificial animals. 42a makes this very clear by the explicit juxtaposition of Ravi of Arkisi and the Seir HaMishdaleach. In the post-temple world of the sages and redactors of Yoma, the deaths of the righteous, including for the Bavli, a righteous rabbi, are the sacrifices that can atone for the people. Now we'll move on to the larger issue suggested by the Daf, the rabbinic reading of scripture. On 42a to b, we see that the Gemara again brings together the Yom Kippur sacrificial service with the service of the para aduma, the red heifer, just as we saw at the beginning of Yoma. On 42a, we see a sugya set off by the term itmar, it was said, which conveys a dispute of the first generation sages Rav and Shmuel. Rav holds that the red heifer is invalid if slaughtered by a czar, a non-priest, while Shmuel holds that it is valid. Rav holds that the slaughter of the high priest's bullock on Yom Kippur is valid if done by a czar, and Shmuel holds that this also is invalid. We will focus on their views of the para. The Gemara points out that for Rav, it is significant that the discussion of the para in Numbers chapter 19 mentions Elazar, who is a priest, and the word chukah, statute. These would tend to exclude the czar, the non-priest. Although Rav holds views on related matters that would argue in favor of the czar's ability to slaughter the para, this ritual he holds is an act that requires a priest. Shmuel, on the other hand, learns straightforwardly from Numbers 19.3 that the czar can slaughter the para. 
Numbers 19.3 states that, quote, he will slaughter it before him, unquote. To Shmuel, that means that a czar may slaughter it while Eleazar the priest looks on. On 42b, another sugya starting with Itmar presents the view of Rabbi Ami, who holds that the slaughter of the para is valid if done by a czar, while Rabbi Yitzchak Napcha holds otherwise. The sage Ula apparently also had a view on the matter of the para, but it is unclear what that view was. One version of Ula is that he holds the para slaughter to be valid if done by a czar, and the other that he holds it to be invalid. Although by a head count or a view count, it seems that the Gemara is trying to maintain parity between the views as to whether or not a czar may validly slaughter the para, the Gemara tips the balance on 42b in favor of the view that it is invalid for a czar to slaughter the para. The Gemara's tipping of the balance is indicated by Rabbi Yehoshua bar Abba's objection raised in support of Rav, who had held that it is invalid for the czar to slaughter the para. The complex source brought by Rabbi Yehoshua bar Abba leads to the conclusion that all the para rituals must be done by a priest, with the exception of gathering its ashes and drawing water for mixing the ashes and water, which can be done by a woman and, of course, then by a male czar. Yet a czar, but not a woman, can sprinkle the ash water on a person who requires purification. As Abaye clarifies, the Torah's explicit mention of Eleazar excludes not only a woman from slaughtering the para, but the czar as well. Hence, Rav is vindicated over against Shmuel. Where does all this leave us with respect to the rabbi's reading of scripture? The rabbi's reading of scripture here opens up a space within which to discuss whether and to what extent the para ritual is hospitable to the participation of non-priests, including, interestingly, women. While the answer is that the ritual is not particularly open to them, this discussion, like the issue of the atoning power of the deaths of the righteous, is another subtle example of the rabbinic decentering of the ritual power and role of the hereditary priests. Join me tomorrow to study Yoma.43. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Chorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.